Welcome to Feed Matters, the Feed Navigator podcast series. Feed additives offer the greatest potential for sector-wide methane emissions reduction, but current U.S. regulatory policy is hampering feed innovation in this respect. So says Frank Midloner of the University of California, Davis. He was speaking at DSM Fermanich's World Nutrition Forum, which was held last week in Cancun, Mexico. During his presentation, Frank also made the case for a new go-to metric for assessing the warming impact of methane emissions. We caught up with him after his talk, and I first asked him what feed additives are proving efficient in busting methane emissions. Yeah, so this is a broad topic. There are two main methane strategies. The one is through the use of rumen modifiers and rumen modifiers are those uh, additives that actually change the microbial composition in the rumen from the microbes that the that the cow typically has including certain kinds of methane forming microbes uh, to another community of microbes that has fewer of those methane forming microbes so these uh, rumen modifiers they have a moderate to low effectiveness uh, I would say around 10% methane reduction is possible. Um, for some of them, that is only a temporal uh, effect because the rumen microbiome uh, oftentimes bounces back. Um, but there are a couple of those, and they are normally natural ingredients such as garlic extracts and oregano and you know, essential oils and so forth. Um, some are more effective than others, I would say. Then there's a second group of feed additives that reduce methane, and that is the so-called methane inhibitors. And methane inhibitors are largely two. The one is uh, seaweed, also called Asparagopsis taxiformis, and the other one is 3NOP, the brand name is Bovair. Both of them inhibit one of the one dozen enzymatic steps that are needed to form methane in the rumen. And uh, they are quite effective in doing so. If you feed a little bit of this stuff, you will reduce a little methane. If you feed a lot, you will reduce a lot. But um, you don't want to go too high, because if you do go too high, then you might affect performance. So, and then there are some other uh, ways of addressing enteric methane, um, largely based around roughage management. Roughage of fiber is largely responsible for methane being produced because the methane-forming microbes in the rumen thrive off roughage. The more roughage they have, the more methane they will produce. So one can modify the ration accordingly. In a beef feedlot situation where um, the majority of the diet really consists out of concentrates, you find very little methane. Uh, Only 10 to 20% of the ration in a beef feedlot is roughage. Um, But under grazing conditions, the roughage content in the diet is high, and that results in high methane. Um, And here the intervention is very limited, because what can you do with grazing animals with respect to feed additives? Under these grazing conditions, there will have to be other tools at the disposal of the rancher or the farmer, and those involve more uh, breeding and maybe the use of a bolus that slowly releases an active ingredient, maybe even vaccinations against methane. And what can the, the like of the FTA do to kind of speed up feed innovation in this respect? 
Well, the FDA currently treats feed additives as if they were drugs, and they really aren't. Um, and currently, none of the producers of feed additives can make a legal label claim of reducing methane because none of them have been uh, undergoing the veterinary good clinical practice studies that are required for the FDA to give their seal of approval. And so if we don't change the way we deal with additives in this country, then we will not have these technologies at our disposal in the future. And so that would be a travesty because they are available all over Europe, all over South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. Um, but they're not available in the United States. And that needs to change because we have ambitious climate goals. Um, but we can't really tell people to reduce methane by 40 percent and then tell them that the tools available to reduce that methane are not as they're at their disposal. That's like putting your heads behind your back and telling you to do something when, in fact, you're handcuffed. And in your presentation at the WNF um, last week, it, you also talked about how methane emissions are measured. Um, you believe that uh, GWP100, the typical way of measuring methane emissions, is, is actually problematic. Can you explain that? Well, GWP100 is the way that methane has been assessed for the last 30 years, and it's not going away. So um, that is one fact. But we know that it does not account for the warming potential of methane appropriately. Uh, if you use this old matrix, uh, GWP100, for constant sources of methane, then you are exaggerating its impact on global warming by a factor of three to four. That's what I've been saying for years. And last year, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change agreed and documented that in their most recent AR6 report. So that's problematic, as you can imagine, because if you have a constant herd of cattle, let's say, and you are assessed with this matrix, then the outcome is that you will your impacts as documented by that, will be overblown dramatically by a factor of three to four. So I think that we need to not just acknowledge that, but also see what can be done about it and whether or not we should, in parallel to GWP100, use a matrix that accounts for not just the production, but also the removal of this gas. And um, fortunately, there is such a matrix called GWP star. That will actually tell you what the warming impact is of this gas. Um, and so I know that GWP100 will not go away. And uh, I know that there are more scientifically accurate tools. And I'm hopeful that they will be used in, uh, in, in parallel in the years to come. Now, the Clear Centre that you lead has fallen foul of NGOs and civil society organisations and other parties um, on the, based on, on this perception that they have that the research at the centre is industry funded uh, and they believe the studies then are not independent, they're not neutral. Um, can you defend uh, the research that's undertaken at the Clear Centre? Oh, I don't really have to defend it. Uh, it speaks for itself. Those uh, publications that are out there are all in the peer-reviewed um, uh, literature and um, <clears throat> You know, it's not not so much a question as um, it's not so much a question of who funds research as it is whether or not the scientist who does the research um, 
follows ethical standards and uh, scientific principles. And um, so first of all, the vast majority of our research is funded by public and not private sources. Some of it is funded by private sources and should be. In fact, more should be funded by private sources. I mean industry, because it is these very industries that need to reduce their emissions. And who else, if not these industries, should fund research to lower these emissions? If you look at the most effective non-governmental organization, NGOs, like the WWF or the Environmental Defense Fund or Nature Conservancy, you will find that all of them work with the dairy, work with the beef industry, and that is the reason why they are effective. If they weren't working with them, nobody would care about what they're trying to achieve. And the same is true for us. Only if we work with agriculture, we can reduce emissions from agriculture.